Today on Government Matters, the future of managing money in the federal government. Two financial management leaders give you a preview of the future. The empty slots at the Pentagon start to fill up. A look at the names that are in and the ones that are coming next. And the number one story of the week, the White House executive order on cybersecurity. Two former federal CIOs on what difference it'll really make. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Draft number one is available now of a blueprint for the future of financial management in the federal government. The team that developed it calls it the CFO of the future now. Mike Wetclose, Deputy Chief Financial Officer at the National Science Foundation. Steve Coons is Deputy CFO at the Department of Commerce. They are both on the CFO Council team that developed the plan. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Mike, I start with you. What were you going for here? What was the problem that you wanted to solve that caused you and your colleagues to get together and start this work? Well, let's see. Most importantly, this uh, past November was the 30th uh, anniversary of the CFO Act. So in the CFO community over the past 30 years, we've done a lot of work to uh, learn how to do financial statements, learn how to work through audits, learn how to do improper payments. Uh, but now with, um, you know, some pretty big good accomplishments we made in the, the community, now we're trying to set ourselves up for 30 years into the future. So we're really looking into a lot of areas like data and technology and uh, things that are really important to the community. Steve, was this a Tiger team or was this the entire chief financial officer community and government coming together? How did this work? Um, the uh, chief financial officer council put together a working group uh, led by Mike, myself and a few others that also uh, included a cut, credit, cutting across all of the uh, CFO Act agencies in the in the federal government, and we basically worked over the past 18 months to identify um, the areas that we needed to focus on. And as Mike pointed out, we found that drivers of data and technology were the two biggest key indicators, and it was a joint effort of the members of the CFO Council at the federal level. Steve, does that mean that CFOs of the future need to be proficient in using data, or do they need to be proficient at working relationships with data practitioners and data experts across agencies, some combination of both or something else? Um, you actually said it, it is a combination of both. Uh, we are looking at being able to emphasize uh, the need for data in order to make very uh, data-driven decision-making to inform policy on the mission side, um, as well as being able to work with both the tool sets that are available by our data practitioners. And we're working very closely with the Chief Information Officer Council, uh, as well as the uh, Chief Data Officer Council, one of the newest executive councils that have been added most recently based on the Data Act. Mike, what is your sense? What did you learn from this effort about what those relationships look like across government? Are they strong, weak? Are they so nascent that we don't know yet? What, what's kind of the state of the art in the interaction among the CIOs, CDOs, and CFOs? They're, uh, we're all at uh, different spots. I mean, I mentioned the, the CFO Council, we've been around for 30 years. So, you know, our challenge is how to bring uh, new life and to, you know, continue our success. 
And then, you know, over recent years, there's been a lot of work to uh, bolster the CIO Council, and uh, they've done a lot of good work. Uh, one, one of the things they have is a um, data science curriculum that we're leveraging uh, that is really adaptable to what we do. Uh, and then we're starting to work with the Chief Data Officers Council, and they're, you know, just like we were 30 years ago, working to, you know, stand up what, what it means to have a CDO Council, how they can contribute. And uh, we just find them to be a, a very vital uh, partner to us. So I guess simply put, it's a team sport. And, um, you know, we're really, you know, partnerships is a key component of our plan. What will the workforce look like or what will the future workforce have to do in order, Mike, to be as proficient with data as you and Steve are projecting that they will need to be? I think uh, as one of the biggest things we found uh, that people were interested in were was data and technology. So you know, being comfortable with data, um, you know, I I kind of look at it in terms of being ready for speed and scale in financial management. So we really want to unlock the value of the community and our, our skills. We need to know how to partner with each other. Uh, but to your point about uh, data, is we need to be ready to. Uh, translate this technology and data into innovation uh, into our, our financial management processes. So that means a lot of things, getting comfortable with computer science, getting uh, comfortable with statistics, coding, you know, all these, these things to be able to interact with the technology. And if you do a little bit of that, a lot of things that uh, seem to be impossible in, in times past is, is now possible with the data and technology we have at our fingertips. Steve, I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, this is draft one. Uh, how will you take feedback on this? How will you evaluate that feedback? And what's the timeline to continue uh, until you get a product that says what you really uh, want to set out as the strategy for the next 30 years? Um, that's an excellent question, and I'll, I'll answer that in that I'm not sure if we will ever have a plan that will be completely done. Um, we're taking a, an agile approach to this. Uh, we recognize that um, technology and, and data requirements are going to change as we move forward, and so we're going to do this on an iterative basis. We are committed to doing this on an annual review to make sure that the direction that we chose has not gone off the rails uh, and that it has not uh, new developments in either technology or in um, uh, data requirements hasn't gone a little bit different than what we had projected to. So our objective here is to do this iteratively over the coming year, uh, bringing in the CFOs that as they become confirmed so that they can get on board. Uh, that is one of the reasons why we're calling this version 1.0, uh, because it, it, we had this change in the transition to the new administration. We want to make sure that they have their policy set into the uh, actual uh, wording of what this uh, workforce plan would be. Mike, we have 20 seconds left. How would you measure success of this effort over time? Uh, just uh, being able to uh, experiment and, and deliver value. I mean, the, the question you just asked about um, is, is really important in terms of um, unlocking our value as a community to move beyond compliance, I think, is the simply uh, put and being able to contribute to uh, the awesome missions of, of our federal agencies. Mike Wetklow, Steve Coons, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you, you very much for having us. You can find a link to that draft at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, more seats filling up soon at the top levels of the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what you missed from this week's hearings. You're watching 7 News. Be right back.
Welcome back. Christine Wormuth looks to be uh, on the way to becoming the next Secretary of the Army after her confirmation hearing this week. Two other high-level nominees for the Defense Department are through the hearing process, too, and more are coming. Tony Bertuka's chief editor of Inside the Pentagon, Aaron Mehta, is deputy director and senior Pentagon correspondent for Defense News. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Tony, I start with you. Um, no surprises at the hearings for Ms. Wormuth, nor for Mike McCord, nor Ronnie Moultrie this week uh, that I saw. Anything jump out at you at any of those hearings this week as unusual, surprising, or uh, anything unexpected? I, I think one of the more unexpected things uh, was that they really did seem to cruise. So this comes on the heels of Colin Cowell's very troubled nomination for Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Every Republican opposed him, uh, and he had a lot of trouble getting through. Uh, so this was a much different experience for these Biden nominees. You had uh, Republicans at different points during the hearing saying, you know, we'll sure you'll be nominated. Uh, we intend to support your nomination. So there's certainly uh, a lot of bipartisan support for these nominees. There shouldn't be issues with them getting confirmed. Aaron, the only uh, thing at Mike McCord's hearing that struck me as unusual uh, regarding the questions to him were the questions uh, that involved his views on expanding the Defense Department budget, the, the paper that he was involved with, with the Deputy Secretary of Defense two years or so ago, not even really a lot of flack that he took there. And that's not really in the Comptroller's purvey, is it, Aaron? Anything that you saw that was uh, unusual in Mike's hearing or any of the hearings this week? You know, as Tony said, it was just interesting to see how little flack any of the nominees got after the very contentious call hearing. Uh, in regards to McCord specifically, he was one of the people who helped draft the uh, National Defense uh, Commission, which is a document that was put together through Congress. It's something that uh, Senator Jim Inhofe, who's the now um, top Republican on the committee, the minority, uh, really holds up, literally holds up in every hearing, a physical copy of it, and talks about it as a guidance. Now, that document was built to basically say, is the national defense strategy that was put together under the Trump administration, under Secretary Jim Mattis at the time, the right process, right way going forward. The the committee came up with some suggestions, some solutions, one of which was uh, certifying a number we'd heard from Mattis that there needs to be three to 5% growth annually every year to make that national defense strategy happen. McCord is one of the authors. Uh, Republicans are very concerned that Biden's gonna look to slash defense spending. So they asked him about it repeatedly and McCord consistently said, yeah, I stand by what I said. We need three to 5% growth to make the national defense strategy from 2018 happen. However, this administration is going to do its own national defense strategy. Once that's done, we'll see what the right number is. The answer then in the way that you laid it out, I saw it the same way, heard it the same way that you did, and took the same message that uh, all of these nominees, including Tony, Ronnie Moultrie, is going to do pretty much what we expect them to do going into the jobs that they're taking. Is that the message here overall, that the administration is trying to choose people that everybody's familiar with and everybody's comfortable with in the national security community? Yeah, certainly you're definitely getting, you know, folks that, that people know in the national security community. A lot of Obama administration uh, people, you know, you're seeing that with Frank Kendall, right? He was a former acquisition chief, and now he's nominated to be Air Force Secretary. Hasn't had his hearing yet, but definitely somebody who, like Kathleen Hicks, uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, who also cruised with her confirmation, a lot of bipartisan support. And, you know, these are people who are, are very much out in public talking about national security issues and have been since they left the administration.
Aaron, um, uh, Tony references Frank Kendall, that nomination hearing in the next several weeks. Uh, is it possible that could have more fireworks maybe than we saw this week because of the nature of some of the programs inside the Air Force that uh, Frank Kendall will have to answer questions about? He's going to have to be a little careful in how he addresses certain programs, certainly. The F-35 is always a landmine. Uh, the GBSD, the Minuteman Replacement ICBM, is maybe the single biggest defense acquisition fight that we're going to see this year, uh, with some uh, Dems pushing to perhaps cancel or delay, and Republicans really digging their heels in on that. Uh, you know, it's entirely possible, but frankly, with, with Frank, I think, uh, and some of the nominees that we're also going to see coming down the pipeline, Heidi Shu, who's the announced nominee for research and engineering, who was the Army acquisition official for a long time. I think these are nominees who are, are going to have largely easy confirmations. You might not see the uh, you know, very friendly relationship that we saw with the McCord hearing or the uh, Deputy Secretary now Hicks hearing. Uh, but I think you'll see largely Republican support. You know, Jimmy Inhofe, when uh, the Colin Call fight was happening, said repeatedly, this isn't about Biden nominees. This is about call and things that he's tweeted and said. And I want the administration to send me nominees who are going to be able to get confirmed. And I think he's trying to make a point of saying that was a single case. I'm not going to put up a giant fight against these other nominees, many of whom have testified in front of Republicans and worked with Republicans on uh, study groups and think tank projects in the past. Um, Tony, uh, Aaron mentioned Heidi Hsu and some of the other nominees that are coming. Any in particular that you're following? I think we're definitely going to watch the Frank Kendall nomination, simply because of all the uh, stress on the F-35 program. You have folks in Congress, uh, like House Armed Services Committee Chairman Adam Smith, who really knows he can't eliminate the program, but he said he's basically done authorizing new money for the program, and they don't want to accelerate production anymore. Uh, they want to get more bang for the buck. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of questions Mr. Kendall gets and how he responds to them uh, and what he's able to say he's he thinks he might be capable of doing uh, to improve the program's performance. Tony Bertuca, Aaron Mehta, thank you very much. Great to have both of you on the program. Up next, moving zero trust to the number one spot on every agency's to-do list. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new executive order that's shaking up the cyber landscape. You're watching 7 News. Now, the number one story of the week, President Biden's new executive order on cybersecurity has some important tasks for agencies. Some of them, though, have been around for a while. Karen Evans is former chief information officer of the Department of Homeland Security. Tony Scott is CEO of the Tony Scott Group. They are both former federal chief information officers. Friends, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. Karen, you first. What, are your most, what do you think are the most important elements of this EO? I'm going to skip over some of the most obvious ones. The one that really stuck out to me was the software bill of materials for um, the software build for software products. I think that that's really important. The timelines in that seem short, um, but that is really critical. And that's a huge lesson learned from the solar winds attack. What's the, what are the timelines that you think are so short, Karen? Well, within 120 days, um, I mean, 180 days, they're supposed to have some of the guidelines out from um, the Commerce Department, but they're also supposed to have minimum uh, requirements laid out within 90 days. So I know that they've thought about this. 
Um, but the vendors are going to have to be able to make sure that they can respond to this because this is critical. And what goes hand in hand with this is also in the definitions where it says that they're going to define what critical software is. So um, I think that that's going to be a dual-edged sword for a lot of vendors if they're determined to be critical software because they'll want it. But then it'll add a lot of um, additional requirements and scrutiny, which should be done. It should be done. Tony, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. What about you? What do you think is the most important or, or several of the most important things in this EO? Well, I really like the review board idea that sets up a um, NTSB-like review board, um, both government people and uh, civilian uh, members. Um, I think that can go a long way to, you know, providing a broad scale look at the problems that we have in cybersecurity and then uh, come up with recommendations. And I also presume that that board will have some investigative power like NTSB does. And that's been missing um, in terms of the total view of uh, where we're at on cybersecurity. That is a new element of this, Tony. Uh, what else here do you see as new and what of it is things that agencies should have already been doing and maybe didn't and now have timelines to comply with? Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot of guidance over the years from OMB and from um, uh, other places, CISA and so on. And I think this helps pull it all together. Um, uh, NIST in the in the frameworks are great, but you know we really need to have this more comprehensive view of the set of problems that we're uh, facing. And I also like, by the way, the labeling uh, for consumer uh, products as well. I think that's a good step in the right direction. Where I think we fall short is we still need some sort of liability for software producers when when things go bad uh, right now from a software perspective it's kind of a free lunch you sign the license agreement and you waive all your uh, you know rights in case there was uh, uh, you know liability there and i think we need some liability on the part of software producers um, to really get people's attention and, and get the kind of focus on some of these issues that is needed. Uh, Karen, Tony referenced guidance and, and the NIST frameworks and so on. Both of you have issued your fair shares of guidance over time. Do you see anything here that changes the guidance to as close as we get on the civilian side of the government to orders, Karen? Or is this more guidance and, and compliance that agencies may or may not decide they need to get to? I think the order is pretty clear, as Tony said, trying to bring in a lot of the frameworks, a lot of the guidance. Um, this this order is pretty prescriptive for an executive order with the deadlines. It also brings in a place um, and ties together the new roles and new responsibilities for CISA so that agencies can't necessarily decide, you know, I'm not going to participate. Because the way that that works here, when you were asking, oh, you know, like there's some things that we've done and why haven't the agencies done those yet? Like I was still kind of surprised about data at rest encryption and data encryption overall. 
Um, and I was surprised when I was back in on, on some of the implementation of where agencies are. But this is making agencies, if you do not meet with these requirements, like you have to report in, OMB is going to review this with CISA, and it goes to the president. It's going to the assistant, uh, special assistant for the president, and they're going to review why an agency says that they can't do certain things. Um, because a lot of this has been in place. A lot of it is investment over time. And um, just because you have a reason or you're saying, well, you know, I have a legacy system or I have this or I have that, um, this really kind of takes a lot of that out of it because you're going to have to stand and be accountable for the decisions you make. And I think that that's really good. Tony, about 30 seconds left, and I apologize for this question with this short period of time. You mentioned liability. Is it possible for the pendulum to swing too far that direction, Tony? that it becomes uh, difficult for companies to want to do business with the government? Well, I think my comment is aimed more in general, not just uh, for government software. Um, you know, there's product liability in every space. You know, if you buy a car uh, and it has a defect, you know, there's product liability. If you buy a simple electric appliance, there's product liability there isn't for software today. And, and that's the uh, issue I'm uh, really aiming at there. Tony Scott, Karen Evans, terrific insight. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to that executive order at govmatters.tv resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. You get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text govmatters to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. 
Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, "Here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years." Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned. You ought to stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.